6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 3 and 4. Well, we're in the second session of the book of 1 Kings, and uh, we'll be dealing with chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, verse 1, And Solomon made affinity with the Pharaoh king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. And now, by the way, this note by the author of First Kings may very well be slightly out of chronological order. This isn't necessarily chronological, as we'll discover if we really study the book. In any case, he, he, uh, uh, the sequence is added here as just an important fact, historic fact, and then also a portent of what may be coming. And Solomon made a peace treaty with the king of Egypt, and he sealed it by marrying his daughter. This was a very common practice in those days. The kings had many wives, and so this was a, a, a political maneuver. The exact identity of the pharaoh involved is a matter of scholastic controversy. Different people have different theories. Some think it's of the, the last pharaoh of the 21st dynasty. Who knows? Archaeology may set, shed more light on this as time goes on. But Solomon obviously is not being cautious or careful about his marrying non-Israelites, as he should have been. This uh, union uh, did result in a peace with Israel's neighbor to the southwest, and uh, which, who, incidentally, was weak in those days. He housed his bride in Jerusalem after he finished several building projects, his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem. Uh, he prepared a special house or palace for her, apparently. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, uh, walking in the statues of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. And during, you may recall, the period of the judges, the Canaanites, did their uh, idolatry on the high places. They were on hilltops and, and elevations and so forth. Apparently, you know, they felt, the pagans felt closer to God at the high places, is, is the presumption, I guess. And that also was used by the early patriarchs. It almost had become so universal among the heathen that the high places are almost always associated with idolatry throughout the scripture. And uh, they were prohibited by law. See, as long as the tabernacle was migratory, you see, uh, they had a means for national worship, but it was provisional. Worship on the high places were tolerated wherever the tabernacle happened to be. It's expressly uh, stated that the God had not yet chosen a uh, permanent and exclusive place for his worship. That's going to be coming. But it's interesting that Solomon was careful to follow David's godly footsteps in demonstrating his love for Jehovah. So he's doing the best he can, but he is doing this high place thing, which is going to end when he builds his temple. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer on that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. Now be sensitive, by the way, that God appears to Solomon. I studied the Bible for many years without really having that sink into my head. Is that, that when we get to the temple, we're going to get into that. That the temple was designed. It wasn't just Solomon's ego trip. It was designed by the Holy Spirit. And there's implications of the design of that temple that go beyond the tabernacle. That implications for each of us, and we'll get into that when the time comes. 
But he says, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give thee. Boy, there's an opportunity. If God asked you, what would you like? You know, what would you ask? You know, boy, we can quickly make a list, couldn't we? And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? In other words, he's asking for wisdom. Give me an understanding heart, is his request. It's, a, it's, it's interesting, by the way, when, back there in verse 5, there seems to be implied a, a cause and effect relationship between Solomon's loving personality in terms of his generosity in making these big offerings to the Lord and the Lord respond, responding and saying, what would you like? One of the great principles in your personal life, I'm going to suggest to you to challenge and try this out, but I believe there's no way you can make God your debtor. In other words, no matter what you do for God, he is going to outdo you. And I think that's part of what's going on here. Solomon was being generous in his spirit to really honor the God of Jehovah. And, and God says, okay, Sam, what would you like? See, in other words, you cannot outgive God. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, he challenges you. He, puts, he dares you to put him to the test. So I leave that for your own uh, devotional study to consider that and look into it. And uh, by the way, Solomon calls himself, uh, you know, just a little guy. He's probably about 20 when he took the throne, is the, is, is the estimate by some. Uh, there's all kinds of estimates. Josephus would make it a little earlier, but whatever. And uh, so he's just admitting his inexperience. And uh, he requesting a hearing heart is what the Hebrew really says, or an understanding heart. And of course, as we see in verse 10, this, the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. In other words, he couldn't have asked probably anything that God would please God more. God often, what would you like? This is like wisdom to judge a people, an understanding heart. So God said to him, because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but thou hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall arise any like unto thee. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt not walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. It's interesting, Solomon is famous for this request, give me wisdom. And God gives him not only wisdom, but makes him riches and honor and so forth and so on. That's great. It's very interesting as you study the Bible, you can hardly find a page in the Bible which does not extol or lift up the reign of David. You and I... If we were judging Solomon David, we'd figure, David, boy, there's a loser. He could adultery and murder and da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. So we would tend to say, boy, there's a guy with a lot of faults. And yet, 
of David is a guy after God's own heart. And throughout the whole scripture, one of the messianic titles is Jesus Christ is the son of David. Right? They don't say he's the son of Solomon. He was, but that his title is, is son of David. You with me so far? So we would tend to disparage David because of all his faults, and yet God in his has put David up there. In contrast to that, we look at Solomon, and you and I would think, wow, here's a guy, the richest guy, the wisest guy that ever lived in his day. We could find all kinds of reasons. Boy, Solomon, there's a winner, right? You know, it's kind of interesting. If you go through the New Testament, the only references to Solomon are almost disparagement. They're not really exactly negative, but they always fall short. The lily of the valleys were not arrayed like him, and so forth. You know, there, there's always comparisons, but they're always adverse to Solomon. You notice that as you go through. You see, what's interesting to me, we all know this story that we just read, how Solomon, God said, ask what you'd like, and, I'll get, and, give, and he asked for wisdom, so God got not only wisdom, I'll give you honor, and da, 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 da. great, that's super. And yet we discover, ultimately, Solomon blew it. We're going to discover that he, he really makes a mess of things at the end. See, what most of us don't pay attention to is what did David ask for? It isn't quite so formalized as a request and a response, but in the Scripture, if you study the life of David, you discover when David had a choice, all he wanted was to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. All he wanted was fellowship with God. Boy, isn't that interesting. He didn't want riches. He didn't ask for anything. He just wanted fellowship with God. And I think it's interesting that David's situation is extolled above Solomon's. An interesting contrast, in my mind at least. You know, check it out yourself. But now here's a famous event. It's probably one of the most famous people who know nothing else about Solomon know this little incident recorded in verse 16 and following. There came to him two women. The, the picture here that's implied is the king's there and he's taking on problems. People are coming up with their, with their situations. Coming to the king for uh, to to uh, judge whatever is going having, there came two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. And the one woman said, "Oh my lord, I and this woman dwell in one house." That's a little strange, really. And I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was delivered also, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, save we two in the house. So these two women and their recently born babes are in this house. And she goes on, and this woman's child died in the night because she overlaid it. In other words, some, I presume what that means is that somehow she smothered it. Inadvertently, obviously, um, uh, the child died. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid had slept, meaning myself, and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. So she's accusing this woman of having switched the, the, the babes. She said, when I arose in the morning and gave my child suck, behold, it was dead. And when I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And the other woman said, nay, but the living is my son and the dead is thy son. And they said, no. But the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. So you're Solomon. What do you do? How are you going to test it? You can't. You don't have a DNA test you can apply. I mean, you know, what, what, how do you deal with this situation? You're the king. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that liveth, and thy son is the dead. And the other saith, Nay, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. And get this, I love this. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought him a sword before the king. 
The king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. <laughs> That'll solve the problem. <laughs> and obviously he's playing with them in a sense. Uh, but he's, he's, he's creating the impression he's serious. Take the sword and let's let, it's a pretty simple problem. We'll just divide it in two and give each half. See, Solomon was a shrewd judge of human nature. He understood how a mother would feel about her, 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 her son. Then spake the woman whose living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. She said, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and no way slay it, no wise slay it. And the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. And the king answered and said, Give her the living child, for, and in no wise slay it, for she is the mother thereof. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. And um, this is probably one of the most famous little anecdotes that exemplifies the, the shrewdness and the insight of, of, of uh, Solomon. And a very famous story. You probably all heard it. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I can add much uh, to it. Uh, let's go on to the next chapter, chapter 4. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were the... Now, we, what we're going to find out, by the way, what we've just seen is a chapter. Chapter 3 really sort of focuses on the wisdom of Solomon. Now, we're in chapter 4, we're going to talk about his political administration, his skilled administration. So King Solomon was king over all of Israel. And uh, by the way, one of the, the, the skills in administration is delegation of authority. It always intrigues me to discover how often the insecurity of an executive seems to prevent him from appointing competent delegates to take on portions of his authority. The guys that are insecure tend to try to run, micromanage everything. The guys that are strong have the perception to, to, to identify and raise up and train people to whom uh, they can delegate. Uh, and that's a, that's a mark of wisdom, by the way. Uh, there are some very, very substantial ministries that are faltering today because of the inability or the lack of preparation of the principal who built the ministry to really organize and raise up leadership to prevent it from ossifying into, into a, a rigid structure and so forth. It takes, it takes great skill. Anyway, uh, so these are the princes which uh, Solomon had. Azariah, the son of Zadok the priest, uh, Eli Haref, and Ahiah, the sons of Shisha the scribes, Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, the recorder. Three men are called priests, Azariah, Zadok, and Abiathar. We could go into all that. By the way, when it says son, recognize the word son in the Bible doesn't necessarily mean, it can also mean grandson or great-grandson. It means descendant. We think of son as the immediate offspring of a father. That's not the way the word is used in the Hebrew. And when they say that so-and-so is the son of somebody, it all just means he could be the son or grandson or great-grandson. It's, it's a descendant. But that's neither here. Let's not get into that right here. Um, so we got these secretaries or scribes, if you will. And that was an important office. Uh, they prepared all the royal edicts and so forth, affecting trade, commerce, and military things, and kept the official records. The scribes, are those are non-trivial roles you need to understand. And Jehoshaphat maintained the records of the daily affairs and so forth. And he also served in that capacity under David, so he's a carryover from the old days. Now, Benaniah, uh, the son of Jehida, was over the host. He was, in other words, the military commander. And Zadok and Biathar were the priests. So that's a recap, if you will. Uh, Zadok and Abiathar served as co-priests, but uh, Abiathar had sided with Adonijah, you may recall, so he's going to be dismissed by uh, Solomon. Zadok will continue as the high priest. And he, he's listed here in the official records, even though he was fired from the high priest, he retained the title and the honor, if you will, uh, even after he's deposed is the point. And uh, 
So it's, it's very possible that he may have had some menial duties under Zadok there. That's speculation. We're not sure. But verse 5, Azariah, the son of Nathan, was over the officers, and Zabud, the son of Nathan, was the principal officer and the king's friend, and Abiashar was over the household, and Adoniram, the son of Abda, was the over the tribute. We've got two men listed here as the sons of Nathan. They may have been the sons of one man, or they might be sons of different Nathans. Scholars can debate that if they like. Um, the Azariah here is not the Azariah in verse 2, by the way, but he's in charge of 12 district officers that we're going to look from verse 8 on. We'll take a quick glimpse of the 12 districts that uh, Solomon uh, organized. And uh, Zabut, by the way, was of uh, the priestly line and served as the king's advisor. Abishar is uh, in charge of the palace, the household, if you will, and probably overseeing the servants and other workers there. And Adoniram was over the forced labor, the non-Israelites living in Israel that were conscripted to work for the king. And a lot of verses on that. I'll leave that in the notes. Now get to verse 7. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, which provided vittles for the king and for his household. Each man, his month in a year, made provision. So there's 12 officers, but each one is responsible for supplying for a particular month. So 12, 12 months, 12 guys, I guess, is the thing. I'm always amused whenever I think of the 12. I, I, I always have fond memories. When we were in the garden tomb in Jerusalem, there's a British guide there. And he, when he talks about this, the, the huge cistern that re- demonstrates that the, the whole garden was under one owner at one time, he says it's 250,000 gallons. And then he usually adds, you know, he says, if God wanted us on the metric system, that's what he did. He's, he's apologizing for using gallons rather than liters. And he said, if he wanted it on the metric system, he would have added 10 disciples. And so that's just a, and so, so, so that's just his little humor. But whenever I see 12 officers, I always think that, you know, 12, anyway, now we're going to get into the, the 12 names. And instead of trying to mispronounce all these names, because I have very little to add to them, I'll look at it another way. Here is a map of the region. And I want you to notice in this region, you have uh, the Dead Sea, of course, and up north you have the Sea of Galilee. And uh, you'll notice uh, uh, to the west of that you have Phoenicia, if you will, and to the east of that you have Aram, which is now known as Syria, and uh, to the uh, east you also have Bashan and so forth, and then Gilead, this is all on the eastern side of the Jordan, down to Ammon, uh, Gad, Moab, and so forth. These are the, the regions, as you probably know. Now, in verse 8, these are their names, the son of Hur and Mount Ephraim. That's region 1 there in the area of Ephraim. And the term Ephraim sometimes is used for a whole larger area because it's the dominant tribe of a group, but that's where it is. Uh, verse 9 is, is uh, another group, you know, the second group of uh, region. Uh, and then we have the uh, uh, Shoko and so forth, that the land of Heifer is region three. It's along the coast there, if you will, north of Philistia, but south uh, still of Asher and of, of Sidon. And then you have uh, version four uh, is, is uh, again, another region moving up the coast there. So uh, in uh, slightly inland, then, of course, you have Beth Shan and all of that from, the, from that coastal area to the Jordan. And then verse 13, um, you've got uh, Bashan, um, there in the uh, in that region. Now, my quick mention about Bashan, by the way, that was also the land of the giants, and uh, the, the land of, uh, among others, the Rephaim, the Walking Dead, if you will. And uh, one of the things that still puzzles me, I'm still doing research on, in, in, in Psalm 22, where you have the Lord, words of the Lord hanging on the cross, as detailed in Psalm 22. One of the strange remarks he makes as he hangs on that cross is that the bulls of Bashan have encompassed me. And I wonder, I, I, I'm still puzzled as to what that means. I don't think there's cattle roaming around the cross, or even if there were, that's not the issue. 
the bulls of Bashan. I think I suspect it may be a demonic thing of some kind that's going on that has been unexplored, to best of my knowledge, in the commentaries. And we're going to try to research that a little bit. But anyway, and then we have in Gad we have uh, Manahim, if you will. That remember that, that uh, region seven there. That's again east of the Jordan, Petraea, if you will, in terms of the Gospel time period. Uh, then we have um, Naphtali, uh, which is up there. Uh, verse fifteen deals with that. You know, this Ahimaz was, was in Naphtali. He also took Basmath, the daughter of Solomon, to wife, so he married well, apparently. Then verse 16, we have Asher up there in the, in the region of Asher, which lies between Naphtali, which is around the Galilee, and, uh, the Phoenicia to the, to the west. Then you have Jehoshaphat in Issachar, region 10, if you will, south of that, still West Bank as it's called today. And, uh, Shimei in Benjamin, he was a Benjamite. And whether that's the same shimmy or not, it's a big debate. I won't get into that here. And then, of course, Region 12 uh, is in the area of Gad, country of Sion, the king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, and he was the only officer in the land. So, uh, again, we have Bashan as a region up further north, but all that's sort of associated with, if you will, the East Bank. So those, anyway, are the 12 regions that uh, Solomon organizes. Not a lot to say about each one. We could spend time on it, but I think that's the pretty straightforward. It's kind of interesting that there isn't one of the 12 that's in charge of Judah and Jerusalem. See, they're subservient, in a sense, to Judah and Jerusalem. So I don't uh, presume that Judah was tax-free, but clearly the, the main revenue was raised in these 12 districts by these 12 guys. But I want you to notice, actually, his, 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 his sovereignty really overlaps uh, these just 12 regions because it includes the Philistines, Phoenicia on the west, and, of course, uh, Aram, Moab, Edom, and so forth. Anyway, so there we are. Jude and Israel were many as the sandwiches by the sea uh, in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines, that's on the west side, and unto the border of Egypt, to the south. And they brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now notice, you, you worry about your taxes. Notice Solomon's provision for one day was 30 measures of fine flour, three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen, uh, 20 oxen out of the pastures, a hundred sheep beside uh, hearts or deer, uh, roebucks and fallow deer and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tifsah even to Azah over all the kings of on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides about him. I might mention just one small thing is that uh, this Tifsa is in the north, that is uh, Saskus, it's a large and flourishing town on the west bank of the Euphrates. The name is derived from a very celebrated ford over that river, and it's the lowest on that river. So it's all the way from the Euphrates to Gaza is what it's saying. That's a, that, You need to understand that. So when people talk about the west bank, you can often ask, which river did you have in mind? In Solomon's days, the west bank was Euphrates, not the Jordan, sorry, by the way. In verse 25, says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, uh, all the days of Solomon. Now, this idea of every man under his vine and fig tree, that is a, a figurative expression, really, uh, for peace and prosperity. It's all through the Bible. You find it many times. It's really an, an idiom. It's a symbol of the nation of Israel pictured in the promised land under agricultural abundance is the, is the portrayal. When it says from Dan to Beersheba, Dan was way up in the north, and Beersheba is to the south, so it, from Dan to Beersheba is an expression that we might use in our country from Maine to California. That's sort of the flavor. It's not all the United States, you got Alaska and Hawaii, but in a sense, when you're trying to encompass it, it's from Maine to California, it's the extent. 
And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for the king Solomon and all that came unto the king Solomon's table, every man in his month. They lacked nothing. Barley and also straw for the horses and dromedaries. Dromedaries, are, you know, is a, a single hump camel, obviously. Brought uh, they two unto the place where the officers were, every man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart. Interesting. That really is a Hebrew term meaning breadth of mind. Largeness of heart is a, a strange to our ears, but in, in our days it's equivalent to saying, speaking of somebody who had encyclopedic wisdom, he sort of knew everything. It's sort of the flavor of it. It's not so much an emotional term alone as, as a man of whose understanding was vast. That's really what it's trying to say. Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the East Country and all the wisdom of Egypt. And uh, wisdom is the ability to live life successfully. And even though he possessed this ability, he didn't always apply it to his own life. So thus he's presumably the wisest man that ever lived. He did not live wisely, uh, as many others who both preceded and followed. The guys that lived before him and after him that lived more wisely, even though he was wiser. He didn't necessarily apply it. How often that is that somebody, an expert in a certain area, because he fails to apply his own wisdom to his own life, stumbles. And I'll give you many examples of that, uh, in some respects, even some personal experiences in that regard. So having insight into life doesn't guarantee that we will choose what's right. The psalmist's great insight was his ability to see to the core of issues, but that doesn't necessarily mean he made all the right decisions. Uh, and so that's, that's just a, you know, reality, if you will. For he was wiser than all men, and Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, and, and Kalkal, and, and Darda, and sons of Mahal, and his fame was, uh, in all the nations round about. We could go into the background of some of these guys, but uh, they were, uh, Heman was the chief of the temple musicians and the king's seers in First Chronicles 25, and the other two we're not really too sure about. And the sons of Michal is uh, another name for Zerah, by the way, but anyway, it's, it, it, it seems to signify a dancer or a chorus. The sons of Mahal seem to signify persons eminently skilled in poetry and music, is the, is the consensus of some of the scholars. And he spake, Kassan spake 3,000 proverbs. And his songs were a thousand and five. So he's a prolific guy. That in itself is quite a prodigious effort. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.